Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. There was a Twitter thread that popped up for me today. It was started by Girl Ziplocked, at Girl Ziplocked, and she asked, What's something about being poor that middle class people absolutely don't understand? I recommend that you read this thread. Uh, If you're a regular listener to the show, perhaps these answers will not surprise you. Uh, But they reveal just a simple truth. No access to the internet. No such thing as back-to-school shopping. How much a parking ticket or a flat tire can literally ruin your life. Not being able to go to college because your parents can't afford the $50 for the SAT. We don't like to talk about poverty in this country. We don't like to talk about class. But it's something that we should talk about. And my guest this week, Sarah Smarsh, actually has given us a wonderful and beautiful opportunity to talk about it. Her book, Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth, is beautifully written. Uh, It is both a memoir and a, I would say, I was going to say like it's a searing memoir and an elegant evocation of all of the different kinds of policies and pressures that have shaped the working class in our country. Uh, It is all those things. I feel very fortunate she was able to spend some time with me this week, and you will be hearing from her in just a minute. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Anna Marie. Uh, I am excited to talk to you, and I'm also excited to share this book. And in fact, I'd like to start with you reading a bit from it, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. All those wrong messages pierced and hurt me, but they didn't go to my core. If you had been born into this world, you would have felt that hurt too. But as a spirit, you were untroubled as the truth itself. I think that's the only way I survived like I did. Having a voice inside me that I could trust to protect me and that I could protect in kind. Class, like race and all the other ways we divide ourselves up, to make life miserable, is what I'd later learn is a social construct. That's what my family calls bullshit. And there are places in a person that bullshit can't touch. Thank you so much for sharing that. It is a very intimate passage. I think you you uh, mentioned that when I, I said that's what I wanted you to read. Do you want to talk a little bit about the passage itself before we kind of get started? Sure. I think that, you know, one of my goals with this book, um, which is definitely uh, part memoir, but but part social analysis and cultural commentary, was, was to highlight the ways in which our private lives and public forces that are so much larger than an individual can c- contend with intertwine. Uh, we have this sort of idea in in the United States that we're a meritocracy and we're definitely a hyper-individualistic society. 
And in fact, I've come to learn that the the most painful aspects of of my private life as a child, one of which I got at in that passage, which was my mother's own um, emotional anguish, uh, were absolutely the result of uh, economic and systemic forces, much more so than they were about my mom's innate character. Uh, I learned that as I got older and she got older and, and um, she turned out to be uh, a funny lovely, uh, warm, and loving person. Uh, She got pregnant with me when she was 17 and still bearing very fresh wounds from her own chaotic upbringing. And those are the sort of lessons I learned in as I endeavored to research and write this book. Something, both that passage and, and you talking about it made me think of is something that occurred to me again and again in the book, which has to do with how one thinks about politics and society, right? Um, sometimes I think that one of the defining differences between a person who might call themselves a progressive and someone who would call themselves a conservative is how much they believe in that connection between public and private life. Mm. Yeah, I think that's spot on. <laughs> and and it's by design, I think, that some people are suspicious of that very real connection. Because if we deny uh, that there that there are forces at work that are larger than an individual's merit or gumption or ability to work hard that feed into one's life outcomes. Um, in denying that, we we allow for those those powerful forces and and the ones who profit from them to continue. So there's really um, uh, some uh, potentially uh, nefarious factions <laughs> have a real stake in ensuring that people believe. Um, that uh, that we get what we deserve and we we uh, we get what we work for. And um, one of the things I try to reveal in my book is that even if you you are um, living with that belief, if you open your eyes, you will see that um, that isn't how life in this country works. Class is so well hidden, and the operations of capitalism are so well hidden. Um, you talk about in the book about having to kind of figure out that you were poor. But that wasn't something that was obvious to you. No. No, I never in a million years would have used that word about myself uh, growing up, nor would my family. And to be honest, I, I still have a little uh, consternation <laughs> about it. And, and the reason is, you know, when you're when you are so keenly feeling every penny and mm-hmm. uh, you're you're just scraping to get by every day, you can you sense the nuance and strata within the realm of poverty. And and so I say that because to us, we weren't poor. And the reason was we had enough to eat and we had a roof over our heads. And we knew people who didn't. They were in our own family. I saw them at holidays and I um and so you know I, I knew that we we didn't have a lot but I certainly didn't understand the extent to which we were on the losing end of the economic continuum in this country whereas you know if you have always been financially comfortable poor is poor you know it is sort of like this um monolithic bubble and 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 when, when you're living within that bubble you you sense the the difference between um, poor as in starving and poor as in, um, you know, we, we can't afford to go to what my family used to call a sit down restaurant, uh, but we've got enough food every day. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, class is, is such a relative experience. It's one of the reasons it's so hard to articulate it. 
that in addition to the fact that our country um, and capitalist forces have a stake in denying that it even exists makes it all the harder to find a, a language to reveal it. And a theme that I think comes up is this invisibility both invalidates the experience and shames mm-hmm. you for even bringing it to the surface. So it's funny. That's why I just sort of I couldn't suppress kind of a I, I don't want to say it's a chuckle, but when you said you you even now hesitate to have call yourself have grown up poor, I mm-hmm. completely identify with that. And I want to respect it, but I also hear that in in you saying that something that I think is true of just a lot of white Americans, especially, which is that we just don't like even using those words. Mm. I think personally, I mean, I, I feel like mm-hmm. even the word poor is just. We're not supposed to use that word. People say working mm. class instead. Well, yeah, I think certainly to apply it to oneself um, is keenly painful for various reasons, one of which is that society shames poverty um, uh, of all colors, certainly. But one of the things that I talk about in my book is how um, there there is a, a unique, a particular type of contempt among financially well-off or, or stable white folks toward people in poverty of their own race. And I think that that is sort of baked into white supremacist forces that, that reign in our country's history. Um, so, yeah, to say, um, but, but, but I think even apart from all the, the intersections of race and gender and so on, it, it's a, um, the, the experience of poverty as a, um, a derided aspect of identity is is unique from some of the other markers like sexual orientation or race or gender in that as I talk about in my book it, it's not what it's not how you came into the world it's not your biology it's not your body it's not your womb or your skin color or your orientation it, it's rather what you ha- what you seemingly have failed to accomplish with, within a supposedly fair system so so it has this very direct, correlation with merit um, that, you know, has to do with how many dollars are in a bank account. And um, and that's a particular type of shame that's that's impossible to escape in the context of a society that that's ruled by money. And it keeps you from having any kind of solidarity, unlike those other markers that that we now live in a society where people can organize around sexual orientation or gender orientation or uh or or um religion or all these mm-hmm. other markers uh but we don't we don't kind of think about organizing around class in fact that's what you know the cable news tell us is a very bad thing this class mm-hmm. war one wouldn't want to start that mhm yeah there could be no more dangerous uprising than if and when that happens and and joins forces with all with all the other protests to be sure um and so so yeah i think that um and and this is where shame comes in, you know. I um, there's a whole chapter of my book called "The Shame a Country Could Assign," and it is about a sort of like pre-adolescent moment where I could sense that my my life was going to somehow play out either in in a, a repetitive cycles that I had kind of been born into, or um, perhaps it would look some other way. And I felt an individual burden on my shoulders to to make sure that that the latter. Uh, is what transpired. And, um, and that, you know, part of that had to do with my ambition as a bookish and intellectual kid. And, and I was just sort of driven, uh, predisposed, I guess, to the sort of, um, 
uh, aspirational quality that that is um, favored by the American identity. Um, but part two of it, I think, was, um, you know, it wasn't just a moving towards something. It was a feeling like I've got to move away from something that that feels like hell. And I, I couldn't have named it at the time, but a, a piece of that hell was was the emotion of shame. And, and that's not, you know, that that isn't internal. It's it doesn't you, you aren't born into the world with it. The, the, the country and the world puts it on you and and people who need uh, public assistance for no fault of their own uh, are, are told, you know, in um, indirect terms when they need to urinate in a into a cup to um, prove they are worthy or eligible for public benefits by making sure there's no um, drugs in their system is, you know, the, these are all um, artful and very effective um, cues that are, that are put in place to uh, make sure that uh, the poor are kept in place. Yeah, that, that's a interesting and um, important theme of your book is actually all the different ways you find where your family's story intersects with like public policy around rural America, around po- uh, poverty. Uh, you talk about the monetization of poverty also, which is a little bit different than the criminalization. But it's something that, you know, I I, I didn't know if I expected it to to crop up in your book, but you talk about the same thing that we're sort of, we've started to hear people say about African-American experience, which is, you know, you get pulled over for a taillight, you get pulled over um, uh, because you had a parking ticket expire. Like there are these whole like machinations of government meant to <laughs> prey mm-hmm. upon the poor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and while you know the the um, uh, institutionalized racism of things like the cr- criminal justice system is is paramount. Um, al- alongside that too is the is a piece that involves p- poverty of all colors, and and that is another uh, line that you you can see drawn very clearly between those who are who are behind bars and those who aren't. Um, and, and so, yeah, gr- growing up, um, you know, I have, I have a friend who's a comedian. He goes by the moniker, the liberal redneck named Trey Crowder. Oh, I know. Him. And something Trey. he yeah. said in his act that I totally resonated with was that like, um, we, my, my people, he, he grew up, uh, in Tennessee. Um, he's, he says, my, my people hate, hate the cops too. Uh, and he's sort of joking in his routine about, the relationship between being like a, a poor rural white and and the cops is also often very adversarial um, for different reasons, certainly, and and to different effect than than the relationship between um, Black American community and um, forces of law enforcement. Um, but it is, you know, I, I grew up, you know, if I saw or heard sirens, my immediate sense was was dread. And it was because either, you know, there was a, a busted taillight that someone couldn't afford to fix. And hence, we would now be pulled over and issued a citation that then couldn't be afforded to pay. Um, my, you know, I, I had family members um, in and out of jail frequently for things like DUIs and um, and. Uh, just aspects of of life that that are often, um, you know, the the thing is, people at at all rungs of the socioeconomic ladder have their vices. But one of the things I try to reveal in the book is that um, the the poor 
uh, catch hell for those vices in ways that the middle and upper classes don't. And so um, you, and, and meanwhile, they might be more compelled to drink for reasons of self-medication that involve the stressors of poverty. And so I, I had friends and family in and out of jail for, for drinking while under the influence or driving while under the influence and so on. And this is again, a, it, it's not truly a parallel with the way that that system has, has preyed upon people of color, but, uh, but, but I do think it's an overlooked story all the same. I uh, was just talking about this uh, in an earlier interview about how I, I, as someone in recovery, bristle when people talk about the opioid epidemic as being like part of the diseases of despair Mm -hmm. because rich people have addiction, you know, problems at the same rate as poor people. (laughs) Yes. Uh, It's just that they have the luxury of being able to sustain their addictions Mm -hmm. and have a job you know, and and be able to like function. Whereas like if you are precarious in your lifestyle and you are chemically dependent, like you're going to get caught. Yes. Well said. (laughs) You know, it's it's (laughs) no, and despair is unfortunately probably equally distributed. It's just some people have tools to deal with it and others don't. Mm, Yes. I think that's right. (laughs) And I actually, you, you, we've both sort of mentioned race and class and the ways they do and don't intersect. And one of the thing, interesting things about the book is that you are very careful to talk about about the differences when there are similarities and and the and the mm-hmm. differences where there are differences between the the experience of of being a marginalized race and the experience of being a marginalized class. Mm-hmm. Something you don't get at specifically, and I'm just but I'm curious about is the extent to which you see or saw or think. Uh, that institutional racism is one of those things that keeps class consciousness from forming. Mm. Yeah, well, m- my my brain and my gut say the answer to that is is yes. There are people who are far more qualified than myself to to parse out and comment comment on on why and how. Um, but I do know that um, you know we this this country has has a long history of uh, well let me say that the power in this country has a long history of uh, cleverly pitting um, uh, poor whites against uh, poor people of color and and I'm not saying that that whites who have um, fallen for that bit don't bear personal responsibility but um, but but I but I do think that uh, the the, the, the powers that be, be benefit um, from racism, clearly, and, and they also benefit from a class structure that in, in many ways has been, uh, you know, well, let me just put this in the context of my own family story to kind of illustrate that intersection. So I, I grew up what, while as we discussed, I wouldn't have said poor at the time. Uh, believe it's true by every measure, grew up poor on a, a wheat farm. I was the fifth generation of my family born into that same life on that same patch of land. Now, my hands uh, bled during the summer when I pulled uh, invasive rye out of wheat fields uh, that you don't want mixed in with your grain before we harvested it and and got a check for it. And uh, and and all around me were, were by and large, 99% white people who were... Um, breaking their bodies in a in an industry and a system that was underpaying them and and they scraped by 
uh, meanwhile. And so the the idea of white privilege when one is living <laughs> that life um, can be hard to see. That said, if you take a, a larger view and you ask how we ever came to be on that land, um, at some point uh, over a century ago, my ancestors from from Europe were were handed that land by a federal government that had systematically uh, wiped out indigenous cultures and peoples um, for economic reasons. Meanwhile, uh, freed slaves uh, didn't weren't so lucky as to be handed a piece of land, even though they might have been promised it. So, um, so 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 the privilege is in my life story in ways that that were hard to experience close up. Um, and and so somehow the the um, the factions that 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 put these people that, that put these pieces into place um, were always leveraging both race and class to their own benefit. So we managed to talk about race and class without bringing up the T word, uh, but I'm going to do that I think after we take a break real quick. We'll be right back. Hiring can be pretty time-consuming. You post a job to several online job boards only to get tons of the wrong resumes. Then you have to sort through all those resumes just to find a few people with the right skills and experience. Those job sites that overwhelm you with the wrong resumes, that is not smart. That is why you should do the smart thing and go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from the hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. If you love this show (laughs) and you are hiring people, don't use it if you're not hiring. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. That's F-R-I-E-N-D-S. ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut. I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, it's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform.
Sarah. I could not help but notice that in the very good publicity materials for your book, the subtitle, uh, Being Broke in the Richest Country on Earth, you know, it's called Heartland, it's eye-opening, startlingly observed story of working-class poverty. You know, there's, there's a word missing, and it's, it's Trump. So I have a couple questions. <laughs> mm-hmm. One is, how intentional is that? I mean, I assume it must have been a decision. Yeah, 100% intentional. Um, I, I, I think before I can answer that piece, it would be helpful if I, if I describe a little bit about the journey of the book. And that is to say, while it, it emerges into the world at a, very, at a timely moment, um, it, it wasn't contrived for that moment. And in fact, I got my first research grant to write this book in 2002 when I was a senior in college. Um, and I and I had the vast majority of the, the words that people would read if, if they pick up the book uh, were, were written by, I would say, like, 2007, 2008. Uh, I couldn't get an agent for about 10 years because uh, people would say, well, you've got a a nice turn of phrase, but I'm not sure why this matters. Mm. (laughs) Um, And then uh, so I kind of put in a drawer and went about trying to scrape by a living. And uh, and then when the country was ready to talk about it, I I had this book ready. Now, um, you know, some of the context was woven in, in in later years, a lot of the more social analysis and cultural commentary, um, what was written in the few years leading up to the book coming out, but I, I got this book deal in May of 2015. I don't, I don't think the T word had even entered the race yet at that point. Um, and, uh, and, and so this was, I, I guess then, and, and then fast forward to when it comes out, which is um, the fall of 2018. And we're definitely in a Trump moment, almost halfway into his presidency. And I said to my publisher, like, um, I get that this, that that's going to be one of the reasons that this is that people might, will find the story relevant and compelling. And, and so it is. But I'm not letting his name anywhere near my family's story or my book because (laughs) (laughs) um, it's, um, you know, people can draw that that connection as they will between the the context of the 1980s and 90s upbringing that I describe and, and where the white working class finds itself now politically and culturally. But that's not what I set out to do, and um, and I, and I hope the book will live on in a way that is timeless beyond what God help us must be a temporary mm-hmm. moment that is the Trump presidency. Um, and so, uh, to my publisher's credit, they they honored that and they said we can dig it, and um, and then thus the the jacket copy doesn't have his name anywhere on it. There is like one illusion. I was looking for it I, I, when I was talking to you. There's one t- ki- tiny illusion uh, yes. to it, which is <laughs> here. Let me find it. Rattling paper. Uh, Heartland dispels today's prevailing narrative that a conservative white man from coal ca- country somehow represents the entire working class. That would be mm-hmm. the one th- place I found like, oh, that that mm-hmm. kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which and I, I want to say for for listeners who may not be aware of this, how unique your attitude is. Mm. I get so many books <laughs> in mm. general, um, but uh, the number of, of authors that are pitched to me as explaining Trump uh, mm. is in the well into the double digits. Uh, mm. And even this morning, I got an email pitch uh, for a book that's saying, like, in the tradition of, uh, of hillbillyology, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, I didn't want, I just kind of felt like, you know, that book, um, 
I wish J.D. Vance well, and, and that book has, has meant a lot to a lot of people. Uh, I also know a lot of people who, who really resent how national media, including liberal folks, kind of propped him and his book up as the explainer for millions of people as though they're all like it, like as you just read, um, white conservative males, uh, preferably from Appalachia. And, um, for for my family and, and and a lot of the people I know, his uh, the political bent of his story is does not at all represent them, and and nor do some of the ideas contained therein. And uh, and so that was another thing that I that I was clear with my publisher about that I didn't want to. I wanted to let my book speak for itself, and um, I started this book long before he started his. And and I've given my, devoted my life to being a writer in Kansas, um, which is a very different thing than than being an, an attorney in San Francisco who used to live somewhere. So he's got an important story to tell, and I'm happy for his perspective to be heard. But, um, but I I didn't feel like uh, I didn't I didn't want to um, uh, convey the book as though it's somehow a response to that one when that that actually wasn't the case at all. And and again, my lovely publisher agreed, and 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 we've done all right in spite of that decision, maybe because of it. And I again for for listeners who don't follow the book industry, the, there was probably someone arguing that you were going to leave money on the table by doing that. Um, mm. There has been what's been described as a Trump boom in publishing. Sure. Like it's, I mean, go to a bookstore. <laughs> yes, you know it is. It is a way to to print money these days in an industry that mm-hmm. has seen better days. Um, mm-hmm. So to do something that is pretty boldly not that is. Um, I admire, and I think I think your gamble worked out real well, because I think this book tells me more about the country than it does about mm. Trump, and I think we only get Trump so. because we are the country that we are. Mm-hmm. You know, he's I think a, that's right. He's a symptom. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, yeah. And he doesn't uh, he doesn't deserve to have his his name printed any more times. You know, when uh, during the lead up to the 2016 election, well, actually, this is sort of a parallel. My tact as a journalist and what I've always felt, I find myself sometimes being a media critic, which I never set out to be. But because I have this sort of rare vantage within my profession of being native to a rural space um, and a working class space, I I sometimes find myself. Um, playing the role of media critic and I just thought like in the lead up to the 2016 election when I I, I was writing some some commentary that was um you know I I, I knew Trump was going to win um when when the when the nominations came down and and then a, a lot of people felt blindsided if they had had my vantage they might not have point of that being I I remember thinking to myself like you know he he's using the media as a um you know, it's every, every one of his tweets is like a very su- successful press release that then a bad uh, that then a lazy reporter just turns around and regurgitates. And that is to his benefit. And um, and I remember thinking, like, God, can we just like um, take the mic away from him for a little bit? Even but of course, he he drove up ratings for cable TV. And, and I think the CEO of CBS famously said uh, bad for the country, good for ratings. Um, and that was so <laughs> you know, I, I had a lot of reasons for for not wanting to associate his name with the book, but but one of them, in in a more political sense, was just sort of my defiance about what I think feeds the beast. You actually brought up something that was one of the one of the few ways I really specifically wanted to talk about Trump, which was how we might have avoided him. 
Um, there's many different ways. Let's not go too far back into history. But one of the things that's become clear to me in talking to people for the show, and, and, and I'm fortunate enough to have friends who can convey this to me, is that people of color, especially journalists of color, saw Trump coming. And it's been said before, I think, in the even now in the August pages of the New York Times, that had there been more journalists of color in the in the nation's most influential newsrooms, the coverage of Trump would have been very different. I have have come to kind of see class as something we should think about as a a same positive diversity uh, as we mm-hmm. do any other. Yes. <laughs> so yes. I'm just wondering. Okay, you're already saying yes, so maybe I should just let you talk. <laughs> Well, uh, I'm with you. And something that so I was in academia for about five or six years. I was a, a nonfiction professor, and um, and my ser- my the service role that I was took up in in on campus was to champion diversity of all sorts. And I and I always wanted to include in the 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 institution's definition of diversity socioeconomic class. And you might even add to that geographic region. Mm-hmm. Um, I just gave a a talk to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting a couple of nights ago, and and I was talking about diversifying uh, public media stations along all lines, race, gender, and so on, and also this, as you say, positive um, diversity about class, uh, because uh, just like um, so, you know, um, uh, racism that the that white people who who benefit from those injustices might be blind to uh, is is more keenly. Um, noted and caught and uh, rectified in a headline by a journalist of color. There are class parallels to that. And every day I see coverage that I think to myself, my God, if, if somebody who came from where I, I do were in that newsroom, they, they wouldn't, for example, call call my home flyover country. That's 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 actually a kind of an uh, alienating term as a media consumer who is proud to live in a place like Kansas to be referred to by the coasts as a place that you fly over because God knows you would never want to step there. <laughs> um, and uh, so these are all important kinds of diversifications, I think, that would will help the media get a story right and also see a story like Trump coming down the pike as as a handful of journalists uh, like myself with with my particular background did. I was thinking about it's the point about how coverage would be different if there was class mm. diversity, socioeconomic diversity. Mm-hmm. And I suspect uh, we wouldn't get these sort of put on your pith helmet and go into the deep, dark underbelly style stories. The safari into the scary redlands? Yeah. <laughs> there would be fewer of those um, if mm-hmm. there were more people who actually came from there in newsrooms. Uh, I mean, I don't think the coverage would necessarily be negative or positive. You know, it'd just mm-hmm. be, well, those people wouldn't have been ignored to begin with. That's the real difference. Right. You know. Yes. Yes, because that ignoring is is part of what made that demographic ripe for manipulation. Mm-hmm. You know, if you feel invisible or to or invalidated by uh, a group that, you know, you haven't really given much thought to and then somebody puts a name on them, coastal elites, <laughs> uh, it's it's um, it's 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 easy for that bitterness or chip on the shoulder to be. To be leveraged for political gains um, by uh, negative forces, and uh, and so yeah, that that uh, vacuum of coverage wouldn't have existed to begin with, and then the the coverage that we see now, I think, with with greater um, 
diversity of class or geographic experience in newsrooms would have, as you say, a, a less um, voyeuristic framework to it. It wouldn't be like visiting a, a zoo to report on the animals. It would be like... Um, so and it wouldn't be greater nuance. Um, yeah. You know, if we're talking sp- squarely about political coverage, for example, uh, a a reluctance about the red-blue narrative, I think, would be uh, a, hel- a helpful breath of fresh air in the media landscape. And folks who live in places like I do that are that are supposedly, quote unquote, Trump country know that on the ground um, that actually doesn't represent, oh, I don't know, like 40 percent of people. Um and we're not all white and we're not all conservative. And um, and that kind of complexity is, I think, essential for, for all of us, even in, um, in urban coastal areas, to understand ourselves as a country. Uh, if, if we don't know who we are and we're just going by these reductive, simplistic narratives, then, um, then how can we ever solve the problem? We need to take a short break. So we will. So the ad copy for Third Love always suggests that I tell you that I my Third Love bra fits so well, I forget I'm wearing it. And I assume that they must know that I push back on that because I just, one should be honest. And I, you, you, I don't forget that I'm wearing it, but it is one of the most comfortable bras that I have. I shouldn't say one of, I have several different Third Love bras. I happen to be wearing one of their newest ones today. It is their uh, new cotton line. And I also, for the first time, experimented with getting a half cup size. They're the only brand that does it. And guess what? I have a half cup size boob. So I am oversharing. But hopefully that is helpful to you guys as well. I didn't even know that I could do such a thing. Maybe I'm only a cup and a half on certain days of the month. Who knows? But this particular bra that I am wearing today fits me great. It's also really cool looking. Uh, It's uh, got kind of a a very cool band, you know, the band that goes under and then it has like a little keyhole between the girls. It's, it's It's a cotton bra that's actually kind of sexy, but also sleek. And it fits perfectly, even though no one from Third Love has put their hands anywhere on my body. You find out your fit from Third Love by taking an online quiz, and they use millions of real women's measurements to design the bras and make sure they fit. Uh, They have recommendations for specific bra shapes and sizes for the different styles they have. Like if you have have bells, you recommend one style. If you have more, uh, I'm trying to remember what they say, but nipples pointing in opposite directions, that type which I guess some people have. There's another type of bra that might fit you. They are the industry leader with 70 sizes, including signature half sizes. It will be the most comfortable bra you'll own. Tagless labels also mean no itching, plus straps that won't slip, ultra soft smoothing fabrics, and lightweight, super thin memory foam cups. The details make the difference from premium fabrics to expert design. Third Love's team of expert fit stylists are dedicated to helping you find your perfect fit. And if you don't love their product, returns and exchanges are free and easy. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash friends right now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash friends for 15% off today. Article is a new sponsor. They are an online-only furniture company, and I have been incredibly happy with them. 
uh, because they're online only, you know, they they can be cheaper than other places, but the furniture itself is not cheap, if you know what I mean. I was looking for some stuff to put in our house, and we we're pretty fixed for actual furniture, but I kind of wanted to change things up a bit. And what I wound up doing is buying a bunch of different lighting fixtures, uh, some table lamps, some floor lamps, because, you know, it turns out you can do a lot with light. Um, and it's a great way of refreshing a space without actually hurting your back by moving furniture. An article has been great about both uh, sort of the style and selection, which is mostly Scandinavian simplicity, but also in the customer service that I've gotten. Uh, since they are online only, I think they have to pay special attention to that, and they do. Uh, they have a baseline shipping, which is $49, and they are incredibly cool about the delivery service, which I think... You could call it white glove delivery. You know, they they call ahead. They make sure you're going to be there. It's not like you had to be there from between like eight in the morning and eight at night. Um, they schedule a pretty pretty tight window, and they come in and set it up for you. So, I would go there if I were you, and you were interested in, in either like whatever. Maybe you have a new place to kit out. Maybe you want to just refresh your space. Go to article, beautiful, well made furniture, Scandinavian simplicity, just cool modern stuff. And right now, Article is offering my listeners $50 off their first purchase of $100 or more. To get it, go to article.com slash friends, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash friends, and get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Turning a little inward here. I don't think we can get much farther in our conversation without mentioning the way the book is structured, sort of narrative journey which is as a direct address. You want to introduce that idea for people? Sure. So the book is is written to or toward what you might think of as a kind of um, unmanifested in- entity that is the the would have been child that I'm that if I had repeated um, cycles of my my family going back to as far as records were kept um if, if I had repeated the, uh, the cycle of becoming a teen mother as my mom and her mom and her mom's mom all were back to like when women wore corsets, uh, I, I sensed that potentially um, inevitable uh, out life outcome at a very early age. And I knew that it had something to do with the economic traps and, and challenges and difficulties that, that specifically women uh, from where I was from faced. I knew that if I wanted to have a different life outcome, that that was going to be one of the big pieces of the puzzle that that if that I could move, and if I could move that piece, then that then the outcomes might look different, and um, and so this address to this would have been child, it, it wasn't contrived for the book as some sort of narrative device. While it does work that way in 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 terms of literature, it it was a, a lived, very real experience for me deep in my psyche from a very young age this kind of conversation with this child I was going to intend to never have and, and I successfully didn't conceive, I I would have these, if I had a moment of confusion or consternation um, that, you know, in, in some other family that, that wasn't so stoic and German Catholic rural Midwestern as mine might have, that, that might have been a moment where parents or grandparents said, how are you feeling, child? We will now advise you with some wisdom. Uh, I, I had a much more feral upbringing. And so the way that I um, navigated moments like that was to turn inward and have a conversation with 
this sort of um, what what I imagined might have been a daughter. So I simultaneously was saying, "You will never exist uh, because I've got things I've got to do in my life that that I and and I and I have a feeling I can't do both." This isn't to say that some women haven't, uh, but but that was the onus I felt um, for myself. And um, so and then simultaneously with that, "You will never exist" was. Um, what would I want for you if you did? And whatever the answer to that is, that's what I'm going to do for or give myself. And uh, and that was a, a kind of um, psychological trick that that we, we might today call it a life hack um, <laughs> that uh, that got me through some hard moments. And I found that while I would would have been very reluctant to share something that intimate with the reader, um, as I got toward the end of the writing journey, and I had these kind of pieces of the puzzle that were very intimate, memoiristic, and personal. And then I had these pieces of the puzzle that were a little bit more like history and uh, social commentary. They didn't always click together. And what I, what I realized was that, that that dialogue with a child I intentionally didn't have was the bridge between the public and the private. Because what, what could be more intimate than one's relationship to one's own body and womb and reproductive choices? And yet... My hyper-awareness of the potential economic outcomes of those decisions and my body and my womb had everything to do with public forces at work in, my, in the generations of my family. So, uh, so once I let that into the, to the book, I felt that it let the kind of two sides of the narrative click together. And um, I think, you know, w- once in a while I do what a, a writer dare not do and I read online reviews <laughs> I, I'm, I usually have more sense than that because my mama didn't raise a fool. But once in a while, I take a peek and, and I think that that um, uh, aspect of the book isn't for everybody, but but the people that it speaks to, um, uh, it it's a, a very intimate connection that they make. And, and that makes me feel like it did my job. Well, I'm glad that you, you brought up the sense of an intimate connection because I definitely felt that. Uh, we just chatted briefly before we started recording, and I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I am from from the heartland myself. Uh, my family's from Texas. I, I grew up in Nebraska. And um, I also had a mother who I had a, had a push-pull relationship with, let's say. Mm. And I have chosen not to have children, mm. which has – there are some mother-related reasons for that. <laughs> sure. Uh, and I will say that I read this book speeding through it almost like a thriller. Oh, that's high praise. Thank you. To see what happened with you and your mom and whether or not you wound up having that kid. Mm. Those were like my burning questions. Right. <laughs> the thing I actually kept noting at first, especially the section that I had you read, really brought this up. And there's no other way to put this but to just say it, which is that I was like, is her mother still with us? Because it's such a frank discussion. I was was like, how can, what does this relationship look like if if it still exists? And you you Mm -hmm. outline it a little bit. And you mentioned it also when we talked about the um, part that you you read. But I guess personally want to know more about that journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm happy to expand on that because it's, it's actually one of the one of the harder aspects of of putting the book into the world for me is the 
that people don't get to see where my family is now and who and and who and they became and what they are. And um, and I actually had a, uh, you know, I, I've got a lot of friends who have um, who who grew up with you know similar parental strife and and we might even say abuse in some ways and um, and and I find I have been fortunate and maybe even rare within that experience that. Uh, as as my mom got older, those those aspects of her personality that were so harsh and painful for me as a kid, um, kind of kind of burned away with time, and 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 what was revealed um, was, uh, you know, loving, funny, generous, um, caring woman. So, uh, and that that helped me, you know. Understand the extent to which the the version of her that I got as a kid was the very young, um, broken by poverty and abuse of her own very recent childhood version, um, and and so that wasn't her core, but but rather um, the scars that she was wearing, and uh, and it, it it turns out that that's um, not representative of of her whole character, which I think is one of that's just a very and kind of individual microcosm, I think, of one of the tragedies of the way that 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 people in poverty are covered in pop, popular culture and the news media, which is so often this sort of poverty porn about the misery and and the addiction, and as you were saying before, kind of like cringing at this idea of diseases of despair, and um, you know, sometimes uh, I'm I'm invited nowadays by by policymakers to talk about these issues, and 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 the framework is always sort of like tell us how bad it is, and, and it's like that's real, and we got to look at it, and it's one of the reasons I wrote the book, but but also too it, real is the um, the the beauty and the resilience and and um, the humor and the toughness, and my mom had all those things in spades too, and and I I didn't come to understand that until later in my life, and that's not the the piece of the puzzle that this book reveals. So that is lovely to hear. Lovely to hear. It's more than that. It's 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 exquisite to hear um, that you and your mom were able to sort of just rediscover each other like that or or discover. Mm-hmm. I do think in some ways this book is about it is both a story about how your life is a encapsulation of all these national trends and policies. And it's also the story about how you're different and how I, I really don't want to use the words like the cycle breaks, you know, I feel like mm-hmm. that's demeaning and, and I don't like that language. But there is a sense that in this book, you are trying to figure out why did you turn out differently? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that is, uh, that's real. And I, I'm reluctant to, to use that kind of language, maybe for similar reasons. I think we're a, a society that focuses too much on the individual. And I'm trying to reveal how there are all these bigger forces swirling around um, that we underplay. But yeah, I mean, um, there there are some sort of exceptional outcomes about my life if you put it up against the statistical probabilities. And 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 that's a to to say why or to grapple with why or how is is kind of an unknowable. I the best that I can ever approximate, um, and this might be like um you know, a totally hollow answer since it's just a guess. But, um, but I was, I just kind of came into the world with a, a, um, an innate setting that is not to my credit. It's just how 
it was uh, my nature um, of, I guess, what, what, for lack of a better term, I would call an artist, by which I mean I was always looking around, observing, feeling my environment, and then seeking to somehow process it, and whether that was art or or writing in a in a diary and um and I think that you know to to make the leap of you know as you say for lack of a better word breaking a cycle um you you have to you just about have to first be able to articulate and look a problem right in the face before you can ever solve or escape it and and just my disposition as a would-be writer which I'm I imagine is what I would have become regardless of my class upbringing, who knows. Um, but, but that allowed me to, to look right at and, and articulate issues in my family that, that I think people for whom that wasn't their natural setting, you know, were um, going through the motions of their lives without, without ever um, acknowledging. And so, so that was one piece of the puzzle. And then, you know, the other thing is, uh, just in terms of generations, there's only 17 or 18 years between me and my mom, but that was the difference between having a, a childhood, uh, post-Title IX childhood when I had teachers calling on me and telling me I could be anything and uh, and being a, a brilliant little girl like she was and, and being asked who she was going to marry. Hey, the people ask me that too, don't get me wrong, but uh, <laughs> but I came in at kind of a sweet spot for for a poor female, at least a poor white one. Um, in which the gains of the women's movement were were still ringing through the country, and and the the conservative backlash against those gains hadn't quite yet taken hold, and and um, and I seized on that moment that uh, that wasn't there for for women before me. I really appreciate how your answer kind of has both a, a component of like something almost just the way that the universe you know clicked together you know, mm-hmm. in, in who you are. And then also there's sort of a, a societal aspect that helped shape you, like, like you mentioned. I'm actually going to bring up something that is in the book and that seems to be a possible explanation in addition to all those other and who knows how many unknown variables, which right. is that you never doubted that um, you were loved mm. by someone. Yeah. You had true. love in your life. Which I think is, I think, when I think about how my life turned out differently, like push-pull with mom, but, mm-hmm. you know, like with my dad, like it was just unqualified like mm. support. And I, I often think about that making the difference for me. Mm. Yeah, totally. That'd be <laughs> a, that's a good point for me to throw in here that, um, you know, my dad had his trials just like anybody. Um and uh, and his vices here and there, but um, but his his he had a he, he was a very gentle father and a and a loving force in my life, and um, you know I'm not gonna say he 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 uh, wore the role of father perfectly, but I always knew he loved me, and um, that was that was true for my maternal grandma too. I uh, moved in with her permanently when I was 11, and. So these are all people who had all sorts of problems, but but yes, you're right. Um, I I knew that 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 I was loved and and that somebody had my back, even through through the hard stuff. Um, and 
That's a huge piece. I'm glad yeah. you brought it up. <laughs> yeah, I think when I, because I do think it is worth talking about individual experiences. And again, we're just going to have to come up with better language besides breaking the cycle, mm-hmm. but breaking the cycle. Because what you want to do is try to figure out how to, you know, re, uh, transmit that to others, you know? Yes. You want to figure out, mm-hmm. like, what what can we do? <laughs> If mm-hmm. this experience is exceptional, that doesn't help. No, if this experience is exceptional and can be an example, you mm. know, that is really helpful. I wish there was a way to prescribe love, you know. Oh, <laughs> put that on a T-shirt. I'll wear it. <laughs> I mean, but, but it also is there's a certain privilege to it, right, too. I mean, there are structural reasons why people can and can't feel love. I mean, mm-hmm. a little bit luck of the draw. But also you yeah. point out that your mom— broke a cycle herself in that she didn't vi- marry a violent man. That's right. And I mean, there's no uh, accounting for it. If you want to just talk about probabilities and psychologies, I mean, it, just every male influence in her life was a, was a, was an abusive disaster until, um, you know, she was a teenager by the time her mother married the man I knew as my grandpa, who was a very decent man, and he's one of the main characters of the book. Um, but, you know, that that was really after her truly formative years in terms of relationship to the masculine. And um, and and yet, uh, the she, as a teenager, fell in love with a, a very gentle, thoughtful guy, which was my dad. And um, lucky for me, uh, else things might have looked quite different in my life. And that is it for this week's show. Again, Sarah's book is Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. There is nary a Trump near it. If you need a break from thinking about the orange man, but want to understand how we got him, I really do highly recommend the book. Please come back next week. And until then, take care of yourselves. Mom, I got the job in Manhattan. Do you have a warm enough winter coat? What about your car? I'm selling it with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. How? I enter my license plate number, miles, condition, upload photos, and boom! An official cash offer from a local dealership. A cash offer instantly? Oh, did you call Aunt Stella? She's right there in Massachusetts. Mom, I literally just got the job. Not everything is as simple as selling your car with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it, kbb.com it. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 